We are going to continue with our series that we're doing of God behaving badly. And we're going to be answering the question leveled to us by a lot of people, is God sexist or is he affirming of women? And our scripture that we're going to start with today is going to be found in Genesis chapter 2. And I've found a poll this week that's interesting um, regarding people's opinions of how they view women and how they view women, especially in light of the biblical record of how women are viewed. And they took a poll and said, well, when we think about Eve, what do you think of? And people would say, oh, she was the first sinner, or there was a snake or something, wasn't there? Or, yeah, she failed, and, and now we're all sunk, and, and different things like that. And I think that's very tragic, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. And I saw it this week, and I had a social media discussion, which is probably not always a good thing, because it usually doesn't go well. But, I did, but it started out well. I had a social media discussion with a woman who was feeling depressed about people making fun of her being a Christian. And I was offering encouragement to her on Facebook, and suddenly several quote-unquote friends started to chime in and criticize her for being a hypocrite and, and not being a real Christian. And they were using profanity, and they were just like tearing her down and saying, you know, I heard you swear the other day, so you're not like a real Christian. You're just a hypocrite. You're just another one of these, you know, false Christians who, who tries to make pe other people miserable as you are, and things like that. And the discussion rapidly degenerated into various rants about God being sexist, being a bigot, um, even condoning, saying that God condoned rape and God condones the sexual slavery of women. And I'm sitting there trying to type and keep up with this, and it just kept coming and coming and coming. And people started accusing me of even um, taking advantage of all you weak-minded people here and living high on the hog off of other people's stupidity. So not only am I uh, a horrible person, but you're stupid for even being here. So I just wanted to let you know that's, that's the world's opinion of us. And I was surprised at how vitriolic and just how hateful that conversation got. It was just a complete hatred of God, a complete hatred of everything having to do with Christianity, the Bible, the church, and everything having to do with that in general. And what I saw in that argument was a huge misunderstanding about what the Bible says about women. So I want to explore that today. And I want to explore this topic. Is God behaving badly in the way that he said that women should be treated? And, and see how that actually plays out in the Bible. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your presence to be with us today. We ask, Father, that you open up our ears to hear the truth of your word. We ask, Father, that you just work through me to be able to adequately explain and defend the Bible's record and how much you love all women. We ask, Father, that you just be with us in every way as we study your word this morning. In your name, amen. So what we see in the world is a lot of misunderstanding about what the Bible says. And if you give pretty much any scripture to five different people, they're going to come up with ten different interpretations of what that exactly means. 
And what the, the mistake they make is they think that the Bible is like any other piece of literature they might read. They, they act like it's the same thing as if they pick up a romance novel and read it, or if they pick up an action or a, a mystery suspense novel and read it, that it's just plain, you know, what's written on the page. And they don't consider that the Bible is not to be read as a novel. It's not to be read as just a, any other book that we may read. It's a collection of books. It contains different forms of literature. It was written by 40 different people. They all had different styles. They all had different audiences. And they all had a different historical context for everything they said. Now, there's two different ways to read the Bible. One is called esiegesis. It's a big theological word, don't worry, we only have two today. And it's also known as proofreading, which is to look to the Bible to support an already formed opinion, instead of allowing the Bible to transform your thinking. And that is what is happening a lot with different things that is, are going on in today in society, is that people will go in and pick out little parts of the Bible here, ignoring what it was written for, and the initial reason that it was written, and trying to proof text your way into an idea or a, uh, a doctrine. And we see this a lot today. And esiegesis is, is kind of a bad thing to do, because I can take snippets out of the Bible and prove that pretty much the most horrible behaviors known to man if I just rip the scripture out of its immediate context and try to use that to prove something. Proper biblical understanding and proper biblical reading is something that is called exegesis. Exegesis is defined as a critical explanation of a religious text that includes all of the following. Number one, the type of literature that we are talking about. The type of literature that is seen in the Bible, just a few of them. One is poetic. We see it in the Psalms. We see it a little bit in prophetic language, and we see it a little bit in Proverbs. It's didactic, which means instructional, which is like Paul's letters. They're meant to be instructional. They're meant to, to lay down theological truth. Prophetic, which is meant to either speak to a specific situation right now or a situation into the future. Or historical, like what we see in Genesis through 2 Kings and the Gospels or Acts, which is for us is the center of what we're discussing much in this message. It is going to be a historical, um, historical type of literature and where we get our foundation for how we view women. Now, exegesis also includes the nuances in the original language that do not translate well into English. And some Bibles have a word-for-word -word, um, form of translation, and other ones have thought-for-thought. -thought. For example, if you have the King James, how many people here have King James Bibles? That is a pretty much word-for-word -word translation. Where I have the NIV Bible up here at the pulpit, which is more of a thought-for-thought. Now, there's plus and minuses to both. The plus of the King James is it tries to take the uh, scripture exactly as it was written and translate it exactly into English that way. Unfortunately, there's a lot of difference between Hebrew and English that doesn't translate well, so they ended up having to add words and rephrase things slightly so it is understandable in English. Because if I stand up here and read a Hebrew sentence, exactly how it was laid out in Hebrew and English, it would, it would sound like I was totally illiterate or, I didn't, or it wouldn't make a lot of sense. So they had, to, they had to switch stuff around a little bit. Exegesis also includes the culture and time in which a passage was written. 
It also includes the audience it was written to. This comes um, a modern example or somewhat modern example of this. How many have heard of the separation of church and state? It's in the Constitution, right? Separation of church and state. That exact phraseology found in the Constitution, right? No. Nowhere found in the Constitution. I don't know how many of you realize that, but you have been sold a lie. The, the, the Constitution says that the government cannot, cannot force you to worship any particular god, is essentially what it says. The, separ the word separation of church and state was found in a private letter between Thomas Jefferson and a uh, Baptist church in Danbury, Connecticut. The Baptist church was worried because all the founding fathers, for the most part, were congregationalists. They were worried that the congregational form of worship was going to be forced on the entire nation. And Thomas Jefferson assured them that the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights put a permanent wall of separation between church and state. Thomas Jefferson was not saying that religion could not be part of the state. He was saying that the state cannot force religion. Because if Thomas Jefferson actually believed this, he could not have had church every Sunday. You know what the largest church in Washington, D.C. at the time that he wrote that letter was? You know where it was held? United States Capitol in the House of Representatives. Do you know who did the worship? The U.S. Army Band. So the government paid for the building, paid for the lights, paid for the, the band, and they had church. This was the founding fathers' intent for this. So context and the audience and the time is key. And I use that as a secular example for people that try to do something even secular-wise and how they also do this in the scripture when they wrest something out of its immediate context of the way it was written. Exegesis also includes the context in which it was written. In other words, you can make the Bible say whatever you want to say if you take things out of context. A few years ago, they had a revival in a place called Lakeland, Florida, with a man named Todd Bentley, and his whole, um, his whole shtick, if you want to call it that, was that he had visions of angels, and one of them was named Emma, and it was a lot of female angels. And I looked at that from a theological point of view and said, well, there is no place in Scripture that describes female angels. They appear as men, not that they're necessarily gender-specific males in heaven, because they don't have to be, but they appear as, as men because of the, the context in which they were speaking and the culture they were speaking to. They wouldn't, nobody would listen to a female angel, so they had to send a male angel. And I said, so where in the Bible do you say that? And they, they took a few things way out of context and tried to prove that he was right, and I, that's just let me know to ignore that. And finally, exegesis also includes translation, which we've covered briefly, which is word for word and thought for thought. And having all this in mind, that exegesis is what we want to use to determine the original intent of the scriptures, let's read now a little bit about God's original plan for women. And I want to make this very clear. This is not a new teaching. This is actually historic Christianity and the way that Christianity was always 
described. But sometimes our minds, even and our thoughts, are so enculturated by our culture to change the definitions of what a man is and what a female is and their relationship with one another that it, this can sound a little bit off. But let me assure you, it is actual Christianity, and almost every commentator for the last 200 years agrees with what I'm saying, including our denomination or fellowship, the Assemblies of God. This is exactly what we believe. So let's go back to the beginning and see what God says about women and whether or not he is a loving creator or, as the atheist charge, a sexist who hates women. Exodus chapter 2, verse 18 through 24. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them or what, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. And for this reason, a man will t leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, this account of creation over the centuries has been horribly misinterpreted and sometimes misapplied, generally by men. And the error starts here in Genesis and focuses around the world helper or helpmeet in, in some Bibles. People take that Hebrew word and try to make it a subordinate word. What I mean is they try to say, well, because the woman was designed to be a help to the man, that somehow she must be subordinate to him. That she is just filling up this little gap inside of a man that he needed, but man, man is the big thing here. But when you do a word study of, of what's going on here in Genesis, the Hebrew word for man uh, or excuse me, for help, is azer, which simply means to help. But its root word is azer, which means to aid in times of distress. It means to protect. It means to rescue. It's most often used by people in the Old Testament when they're calling upon God for deliverance. I found that to be an interesting thing when you do what's called an Englishman search of, the, of that specular word and everywhere it's used in the, in the Bible. Every, almost every single time I looked for that, it was somebody calling up to God for deliverance. So that is the, the meaning behind the word helper or help inside a, in Genesis here. It is definitely not a subordinate word. It is definitely not a word to mean man is up here and woman is down here. It talks more about function. Let me give you an example. If you have a heart attack today and they fly you down to Gunderson and they're getting ready to take you into the cath lab and the doctor comes in and says, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to insert a, a catheter into your body. I'm going to go into your heart. I'm going to clear this blockage. I'm going to help you recover from this. 
Does that make the doctor subordinate to you? Does that somehow make him less than you because he is going to help you? I think the answer would be no. And I think if you told the doctor and mocked him like that, it probably, I wouldn't want to do that for a guy who's trying to save my life. And that's exactly the kind of thought that is behind the Hebrew word for helper in this. Or, according to, didn't Jesus help us? Didn't Jesus come to save us from our sin? Didn't he come to serve us and to help us? Are we greater than him? It's the same kind of thought that is being said here in Genesis. There's another error that I want to explore, and that is only man is made in the image of God. There is a, a thought in very conservative and very, I, I would say, the older kind of churches that only man is made in the image of God and women are made in the image of man. So let's go back in Genesis a few paragraphs and look at that in Genesis 1.26. I'm going to note, though, that I want you to look into your Bibles. That as we read this, I want you to know that there is a language style change here. And it's changing from a historical or didactic form of language to more of a poetic form of language here. Hebrew poetic verses are generally done in what's called a parallelism, which means that there is a truth statement that is made, and then the supporting poetic um, verses after that support that initial statement. So I want you to read that with this in mind. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man, Hebrew word Adam, in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move upon the ground. Now the parallelism begins here in verse 27. Truth statement. So God created man. Now there's a different word here. It's ha-adam, which is an inclusive of all. It means to be inclusive of all men would be what that means. God created man in his own image. Modern Bibles will change that word, ha-adam, to either mankind or all of mankind. And then the defense of the initial statement or the clarifying statement is found in the next verse, or the next part of this verse. And in the image, God created him, male and female, he created them. So you see that man and women were both created in the image of God. They were both created by God's direct hand. And I know some people will, will then point to 1 Corinthians 11 that says, well, you know, it says that, you know, the head of Christ is, or the head of man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and all that. But what he's talking about is worship. This is talking about creation here. Again, context is key. Another point from these two scriptures is that all men, or excuse me, all creatures in existence were created from dirt, right? From the anthill outside, from the gopher that we were talking about, Bernie, to man himself, we're all dirt, having a spiritual experience, except women. <laughs> women were not created from dirt. And all the women said, amen. <laughs> God perfected man by removing a part of him and making another creation outside of a man that will complete him. That is what a woman's job really is. If you think about it, women is man 
She's the revised version, the better version. It's like God the engineer looked at man and said, you know, that's pretty darn good. I can tweak it this way and make it a little bit better. So he created women. It also explains why women are hardwired to love receiving flowers, right? You say, oh, what does that have to do with anything? Well, think about it. It reminds of creation, that you were beauty plucked out of dirt. That's why you guys love flowers. That has nothing to do with anything. It's just something random thought I had when I was writing this message. But women were formed to complete the missing parts of the man. And, what, and a lot of the things most commonly missing for most men, particularly in our fallen condition, are empathy, sympathy, unconditional love, and vulnerability. You usually don't see women saying that they're going to totally deny their children and, and say, I'm disowning my child. It's always the man who does that, usually. I, you're dead to me. You're disowned. Women can't do that. They have unconditional love for their children no matter what. We men have a tendency to be very aggressive, be very violent even sometimes. I mean, we kind of, Genesis to de-emphasize the role of women is pointing out the curse. That after God, they went and did it. And it was both of their faults, especially Adam's in my opinion. Adam was supposed to be guarding the garden and he let some guy come up and start talking to his wife. So he, he failed in his his uh, role long before the woman failed in hers. But people try to point back to the curse and say, well, women are supposed to be subjected to men because of the curse that God leveled upon females. And we're going to look at that here. And this is a scripture that a lot of people use to put women in their place. And I noticed that something for the first time, actually, studying for this message. And I wrote to my friend and, and talked to him, who's the PhD candidate in Hebrew, and asked him, I said, does this sound right? Because as, as I look at this, and if I apply exegetical skills and, and knowledge to this scripture, this is what I'm seeing. Now remember, Adam and Eve have sinned. They're hiding from God. They've sown fig, fig leaves. And now God comes and asks, what did you do? Adam tells him, it was a woman's fault. Doesn't even take responsibility for it. It's that woman you gave me. So God starts to pronounce judgment. To the snake, he tells him, I'm taking away your, your ability to speak. You're going, to have an en- you're going to have an enemy of the woman, and you're going to crawl on, your, on the dust. He tells the men, you're going to have hard labor throughout your entire life. And to the woman, he says something very interesting here. And again, note the, the change in writing styles here. Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, gives us God talking, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, and with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is a verse that is grossly taken out of its immediate context. And interestingly, when I was looking at this in the Hebrew, I found that the word I was not there to where it says to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase. The word I isn't even there. It was added for supposed clarity by King James translators and following translations followed it, but it's actually not in the best Hebrew text. And And it was put in there really by supporting a middle-aged bias that men were superior to women. So they were saying that God cursed woman in this way. 
that God was delivering this curse. And newer translators completely remove it. They just, they just say that your pain is going to increase with childbearing. And I thought that was very interesting. So I looked at the reasons why that this, this happened this way. And what I looked there, and this is what I was consulting with my PhD friend about, is that the style of writing dramatically changes there. Again, from a historical narrative language uh, method of writing to a prophetic language of writing. So what God was doing here is he was simply saying, because you have fallen into sin, because your nature has now been corrupted, there is going to be some consequences of that now. This is not God directly causing something, but God foreseeing in the future what is going to happen to women and men, by the way. Remember, there was also a curse against men. What is going to happen to them? And prophetic language in the Bible can be used either to pronounce immediate curse, it's called foretelling prophecy, or future events, which is foretelling prophecy. And God is doing a little bit of both here. So when he says that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, this isn't necessarily a direct curse of God. This is not a command that God is saying, you will now be subordinate to your husband. It's a prophetic of the future and the curse of the result of women not obeying her husband and God's given warning not to go anywhere near that tree and eat of it. So why is this verse used to treat women less than men? Because sin, our sinful nature, when we fell in the garden, it ripped away from men that very thing that was meant to complete men, which is the softer side, which means the respect that Adam initially had for Eve when he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I'm going to treat this woman as I would treat myself. That was totally done away with in a man's thinking after the fall. And this is the answer, if you think about it, to why men have nothing really to buffer their more aggressive tendencies. This is why there is so much violence against women. This is why they are socially uh, kept down. This is why they are emotionally abused. This is why sometimes they're even physically abused. It's because mankind, has been their image of God with them has been destroyed. It's sin, period. Sin destroyed that image of God. And without the new birth, without the ever-present influence of the Holy Spirit living in each side of us, we are going to act like the rest of nature. Survival of the fittest. That is, that is a problem within man, not God. And the secular person would look at this and see and doesn't want to see this because then they have to face the fact that they might be the same way, that they might actually be, again, running from God and, and being a sinner. Because if they're a sinner, then that means there's something else outside of themselves that determines that which is sin and that which is evil. And if that's the case, they might be held responsible someday. So man just kind of throws out this whole thing and tries to read things into the Bible that aren't actually there. Keeping this, this created order in mind, let's briefly look at another consideration when we consider the question, is God sexist or is he affirming of women? And that is the culture in which laws were written in the Bible. Now, a lot of people will look at the Mosaic law and say that it's barbaric, it is demeaning of women, it destroys you know, the worth of a woman and all these kind of things. 
But we have to consider the culture of the Bronze Age, which the Bible was written in. The time that Moses gave these laws was something in history called the, the Bronze Age. In biblical history, it was pretty much from the flood onward through um, Joshua's taken to the Promised Land. And by the way, for people who criticize what the law in the Bible says about women, it's interesting that they never criticize the fact that much of the world still lives under these laws. Only it's called Sharia law and it's perpetuated by Islam. I just find that kind of interesting. And men, particularly after the flood and Noah's son Ham's line, they quickly fall back into sin and within three generations from Noah, they're building the Tower of Babel, shaking their fist at God. And because of the influence of sin and the selfishness of man, women are quickly subjugated into second-class citizens. They really are horribly mistreated in the Bronze Age cultures. It is because of the selfishness of man, and they could be bought at that time, they could be sold, they could be enslaved for physical labor or sexual uh, labor, such as being a concubine. They could be forced into prostitution or just get bartered, bartered or tra traded for the benefits of man. A great example of this is seen in Genesis 19. Genesis 19 deals with Sodom. Abraham was trying to barter with God about if there's any righteous people in Sodom, will you spare the city? And it turned out there wasn't a single righteous person. So God sent angels in to rescue Lot from the, um, from the destruction that was about to come. And the angels are invited into uh, Lot's house. The neighboring community sees that there's new men in the city and says, hey, let's go have, try to have sex with them and everything. And Lot just says, hey, uh, no, you, you can't touch these men. Let me send out my, my daughters, and, and you can do with them whatever you want. Now, a secularist will look at that and say, God is really awful. If he is going to allow this man to do this, that means that God is awful. But what we have to remember is that the, God, that the Bible is a historical book. You can't blame God for things that happen in the Bible just because they're in the Bible as a historical record. That would be like going down to the high school, opening a, a fairly modern history book, seeing that it has things in there about Nazi Germany, and then wanting to burn the history book because it recorded a human history. That is when they take the Bible out of context this way. But this is the world that Moses lived in, was this Bronze Age culture. And through God's instructions, this is why he gave these 613 laws that you see in Exodus through Deuteronomy. And if we're going to pro practice proper exegesis, we have to view the law of Moses through these lenses to understand why these laws were given. So keep all this in mind as we go into the Old Testament treatment of women. And let's look at some of the laws about women that drive people crazy. And one of the laws that when I was having a social media discussion was pointed out to me as God condoning rape. In Exodus 25, there are several laws given. And one of them has to do with what you would do in your community in regards to rape, particularly in verse 28 and 29. The first thing that I want to note is that rape in the Bible is a death penalty offense for the man if he is caught in the act. 
But because they didn't have criminal investigative services back then, they didn't have DNA testing, they didn't have forensics like that, they had to set it up on pretty much word of mouth or if you were caught directly. And if the assault was done in a place where the woman could not cry for help or nobody would hear her, then it turned out to be her word against her rapist. And the death penalty couldn't be leveled. Remember that the only time death penalty can be leveled is on the testimony of two or three witnesses that agree. However, if the woman could convince the town elders and the leadership that was around her that the rape occurred and then identify her attacker, the, this law was given to be not left with no recourse for her support. And this is where women go, or secular feminists go a little bit crazy in that they're saying, well, women are forced to marry a man that rapes her? Well, what they don't understand is that in the Bronze Age culture, if a woman was raped and no longer a virgin, nobody would marry her. Nobody would marry her at all. And when her father died or her brothers died or if they didn't want to take care of her, she was left homeless. She was destitute. And there's really only two things she could do, sell herself into slavery or become a prostitute, which is also a death penalty crime. So this is an uh, incredible, and, and, and I know in our 21st century thinking that we can't even really comprehend this, but you have to put yourself back in the Bronze Age and understand that the, the sensibilities of the 21st century are a lot different than they are here. And in the Bronze Age, when this law was given, this was seen as a revolutionary sign of God's tender mercy and love for women that they could be provided for. That even if it was with their rapist, that the rapist would then be forced to marry this woman and at least provide for her. Now, she might be 32nd wife, but she would be at least provided for. And it showed the community at large that God cared about women because every other God in that area at the time saw women as expendable and something to be sacrificed, bartered, sold, or trade. Another example that drives people crazy is the example of, it seems like there's an um, example of easy divorce in the Old Testament. Now in the Old Testament, a man prior to the law being given could divorce his wife for any reason. And really there was no divorce. It was, okay, you burn my food, get out. There wasn't even really a cause that had to be done. And technically he didn't even have to divorce her. He could just sell her. He could barter her for a cow or an ox. He could sell her into slavery or he could just kill her. This was the culture of the Bronze Age. The idea behind easy divorce is that, or the idea, excuse me, behind divorce in the Old Testament is that a man could only divorce his wife for cause. There had to be a cause and that cause was generally adultery. And if that happens, there was again a death penalty case. And if this happened, if, if women were just thrown out, again, they're sold into slavery, they're taken as concubines, or they're homeless and starved to death. So this, again, is an act of mercy because God is trying to protect women within the Bronze Age. And Jesus even stated that Moses gave rules about divorce because men's hearts were hard and wicked. So there's, this isn't so much God being sexist or God behaving badly, but God protecting women from men behaving badly. God is in his mercy is, is formulating different ways to protect women from men. Because 
basically, we did these things to women because we can. We were stronger, we were more, violent, more prone to violence, and we subjugated women because of our fallen nature within that, that happened to us because of the fall of man. Now, the New Testament changes everything, though. People always go back to the Old Testament to try to say that the God of the Bible is evil. But let's look at what the New Testament, as Paul Harvey would say, let's look at the rest of the story. The New Testament view of women. Jesus' view of women, which is totally different and returns to the created order that was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. Let's see a couple of examples of this. In John's Gospel, he talks to a Samaritan woman. And he breaks through several cultural barriers right here. Number one, Hebrew men did not talk to women. Women, even in the Hebrew culture, were still considered second-class citizens. And a man did not have time for a woman that happened to be sitting there at the side of the well unless he's telling her to do something for him. So the fact that he even talked to this woman was revolutionary. Even his apostles said, what is he doing talking to this woman? Even his disciples are looking at him going, what are you doing? Why are you talking to, to, to that? Is essentially how they were looking at it. Jesus also personally ministered to them. Remember, when women went to church in the New Testament, and not church, I should say, when they went to temple in the New Testament, they had the court of women, which was, you think the nosebleed sections in a sports stadium are bad? They're way back there. They really can't even hear or see or understand what is going on inside that temple because all the men are up front. And it, there's even some old churches here that still do the same thing. But Jesus is ministering to her personally. Three, she is a Samaritan. She is an enemy of Israel. And he is personally talking to her. He is personally ministering to her. And look at the last thing he does. He calls her to personally evangelize her community. He uses a woman to evangelize and tell people about him to her community. A second way that Jesus broke through the culture of his time was the situation with Mary and Martha. You remember that Jesus shows up with his huge gang of disciples. Martha goes crazy. She's going and making sandwiches for, you know, probably 30, 40 people. And she's in the kitchen and she's slaving away. And meanwhile, her sister's sitting over here, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach. That was a major social faux pas. Women did not sit down at the feet of a teacher. Women were there in their culture, were there to serve men, period. So her taking the, the place of a man and sitting at the feet of Jesus was a major faux pas. And that's what led Mary, or excuse me, Martha to say, Jesus, Jesus, look, uh, she, she can't be down there. She's supposed to be helping me. That was, that was why she said that. It wasn't just because she was getting so frustrated. It was, uh, you can't have this, Jesus. But Jesus told her, Martha, no. No, no, no. She's picked the right thing. She has every right to be where she's at as a man because of who I am and because I love her enough to want her to sit at my feet and listen to me speak to her. She has the same worth and value in my kingdom, Martha, as any of these men that are sitting around here. Consider also, who was the first person to see the resurrected Christ? A woman. Who is the first evangelist of the resurrection? Not only a woman, a sinful woman 
or a woman that had, had been redeemed. This was a prostitute. This was, would be considered the lowest form of life in Israel at that time would have been a prostitute. Yet God used this woman to proclaim his resurrection. Let's look at Paul's view on women. He considered them to be co-equals or co-heirs of salvation with men in Galatians 3.28. There's a submission of women in marriage only, and this is very important, only as a husband submits to Christ. And that goes back to that 1 Corinthians 11 thing I talked about earlier. Only as a husband submits to Christ. So in other words, man, you cannot tell your wife or significant other or whoever that you need to submit to me because I'm a man and then tell her to do something that is evil. She does not have to submit to that. She does not have to put up with your abuse. I'm not saying that she gets to leave you for any crossword you might say to her, but she is not to be abused. This is your body. Paul sees women as co-ministers with him, even naming some of them to be apostles. Saying that, I think that headship over the overarching headship should remain male. That's not demeaning to women, but staying within God's created design. And you see that again in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 3, and Titus chapter 1, if you want to read that on your own. But God can and will use anyone or anything. And understand the comparisons I'm about to make are, I'm not saying that because God can do this, that women can do this. I'm just pointing out that Jesus said he can make rocks worship him. Can he? He said, if these people don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. The Holy Spirit can make a donkey speak, which is why it's okay for me to be called into the ministry. And a woman can lead, a woman can and will be called to lead if no man will be willing to. They are co-equals with us in salvation and everything in heaven. Finally, the ultimate proof that God loves and affirms all women is that, and that all women have great worth in his sight is simply the central verse of the whole Bible. John 3.16, that God so loved the world. Now, if women were not considered to be valuable in God's sight, wouldn't Jesus have just said, for God so created man? No, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, man, woman, believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And at the cross, we are all equal. We're all dependent upon the same Savior, aren't we? We all come with the same needs, the same sin, this, to seek the same salvation. So let's end today by focusing on our Savior again. And let him search us and know us and expose within us any wrong thinking that we may have on the value and position of both men and women in his kingdom. Thank you for tuning in to the Whitehall Assembly of God podcast. This is Pastor John Oscar, the senior pastor of Whitehall Assembly of God. If these messages have blessed you, I just encourage you to subscribe to these podcasts and you'll be able to hear every single message that comes out of Whitehall Assembly. 
If you are interested, go on Facebook and like us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page, Whitehall Assembly in beautiful Whitehall, Wisconsin. We also have a website that you can visit, whitehallassembly.org, or you can come visit us in person. We are located on the corner of Dewey Street and Sheila Street in Whitehall, Wisconsin. We hope to see you there someday. If these messages have blessed you, I'd just like to encourage you to contribute toward us being able to continue to bring them to you. You can see that on our website, top right corner of the page. If you have any questions, you can contact me at my email, pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. If you don't mind, I would just like to take a moment to pray for you before we go today. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that every single person who listens to these messages will be brought into a deeper relationship with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let them experience the love and forgiveness that Jesus bought for us on Calvary's cross. I ask, Father, that you just use it to enrich their lives, that you use it to make them good ambassadors of the kingdom of God, and bring them into your presence someday. Let them be fruitful, let them multiply, and let them be used mightily for you in these last days. Father, I commit them to your care now. In Jesus' name, amen. God richly bless you.